We've explored a lot in this first session of Infinite Potential, and I'm grateful you've been with me throughout. So, as we head into our final episode, I wanted to dive directly into the subject that has run through all our conversations, the stories we create and our power to change them. If you ask, is there another possibility? Is there another way I can live my life? Then of course, you're opening up the chance to really sculpt your life in, in the ways you want to. Whether the stories were about the universe. What distinguishes human consciousness is the fact that we see time, not just space. We can even go before creation. We can go before chapter one, verse one, when God says, let there be light. On nature. We are part of this incredible animal kingdom. The more we learn about it, the more we learn about ourselves. Our architecture. We have the opportunity to imagine a future that is better and then act in the present to build that future. We've seen the influence they exert on us, shaping identities, framing experiences, and defining ideas. They do some good, they do some harm, but they are our unique human endeavor. We create myths. From childhood fairy tales to blockbuster movies, myths are omnipresent and omnipotent. They are the lessons that teach us how to be human. They are the models that we build our quests upon. Sometimes they are so deep-rooted we forget that we are also their author. We can be the heroes of our own narratives, change them and even rewrite our futures. So, is this our superpower? Today we look at myths and how to unlock our human potential. Myth in some ways is something that never was but is always happening. I think we are more acts of imagination than anything else. That we come, we are spawned from an imaginal world. A world where these potencies for what can be always exist. It's about taking our lives in our hands and consciously choosing to grow. That's what human potential is. The possibility to make something that existed potentially, perhaps our everyday reality. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. Before we begin, I want to share a few key terms important to know for this conversation. One, myth. A story often tied to a history and tradition of a specific culture which also typically holds social meaning and lessons for that culture. Two, archetype. 
a character that perfectly embodies the traits at the center of a mythology. Think of a cowboy, a knight, or a Jedi. They are the model, the moral, and the hero. One of my heroes is today's guest, Dr. Jean Houston. She's been investigating myths and mythologies for as long as most of us have been alive. She's worked with so many of the great thinkers, writers, philosophers, and creators of the last century, from Joseph Campbell to Margaret Mead, and so many more. She's lived no small life herself, and she's learned a thing or two about how to unlock our human potential. Jean is, quite simply, a remarkable human being. So let's go. First of all, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Deepak. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Jean, you've been through the years, uh, in a sense, uh, with almost every leader and luminary that I know. So let's talk about that and your childhood and your father and all the influences that uh, you had that make you who you are. Well, to start that back, far back, or even before I was born, my father, who was a Baptist from Texas, had to become a Catholic to marry my mother. I see. And uh, they said, uh, and my father was a comedy writer. He was writing the Bob Hope Show at the time. The Bob Hope Show? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah, and Burns and Allen and all those folks. Yeah. And so he and the young priest traded jokes instead of theology. And finally, the priest said, Jack, you're just a natural-born pagan. I'll give you a learner's permit so you can get married. But any kid <laughs> comes along, you've got to bring them up Catholic, send them to Catholic school. Sure, 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 says my dad. Well, when I was five, my father got kicked off the Bob Hope show for an excess of high spirits, and which happened with great frequency, by the way. So we were sequestered with my mother's Sicilian family in Brooklyn, or Brooklyna, as they refer to it. And I was sent to the local Catholic school, where my father gagged up my catechism and asked me the most interesting questions to ask the poor little nun in the morning. Like, Sister Teresa, I counted my ribs and I counted my friend Joey Mangiabella's ribs, and we got the same number of ribs. And if God made Eve out of Adam's rib, how come? And we, I said, one, two, three, and we all lifted our undershirts and proved we had the same number of ribs. And then, of course, the ultimate question, which I thought of, Sister Teresa, did Jesus Christ ever have to go to the bathroom? That did it. And the nun got so angry. Every time I asked a question, there was another X. Each X was at least a million years. And at the end of the first grade, I had 300 million years in purgatory to my credit. Oh, my God. I went home crying and crying and complaining to my father. And he laughed and laughed, and he picked me up and put me on his shoulders and went running past all the Sicilian neighbors who said, Hey, there goes a crazy Jack. Crazy Jack, watch out. You'll go kill a bambino. I would go back to school and see Sister Teresa and seeing the sheer humor in everything. Just smile on her beamingly because I knew that she was part of the whole, even though she had been so terrible to me. Let me go a little further into your history because as a child then you also encountered one of the great teachers of all time, uh, Pierre de Chardin, yes. the Christian theologian who 
you know, we attribute the famous saying to him, we're not human beings that are having occasional spiritual experiences. We are spiritual, we are spiritual beings, beings having a human experience. Okay. Yeah, having I was a, actually 14. Okay. I had just found out that my parents were getting divorced, and I went into paroxysms of grief. It seemed so wrong. Uh, my father had met somebody else. And a friend said, well, you can always run away from your grief. Just run. So I took to running down Park Avenue. And I ran into this old man, and I knocked the wind out of him. And I helped pick him up, and he said, are you planning to run like that for the rest of your life? In French accent. I said, yes, sir, it looks that way. He said, well, bon voyage. I said, bon voyage. The following week, I saw him. He said, ah, my friend, the runner, where are you going? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to Central Park to think about things. I will go with you sometime. Okay. So for off and on, between my 14th and 17th year, we would walk together. He had no self-consciousness at all. He would suddenly fall to the ground in the grass, say, Jean-Luc, a caterpillar. Mm, caterpillar. Can you feel yourself to be a caterpillar? Can you become un papillon, a butterfly? I... I think so. I mean, I was nearly six feet tall and I had red dots on my face. I felt like a caterpillar, you know. What are you when you finally become a butterfly? I don't know. You know, you know. It is in you. Metamorphosis, it's part of you, you know. I think when I become a butterfly, I'll, I'll fly around the world and help people. And that, of course, was my own prophetic announcement. The annunciation of the prophetic moment of of everything that I then subsequently did and fly around the world and help people. I'm reminded of that uh, saying, just when the caterpillar thought the world was coming to an end, <laughs> she turned into a butterfly. Yes, it was. It was like uh, that. It was my moment of transformation. Yes. But you had other influences. You met Joseph Campbell. Well, Joseph Campbell and I worked together off and on for 20 years. Yeah. I would. He would tell the story uh, the mythic story, and then I would find processes to enact so that people became the hero or the heroine. Uh, of their story. Of their story, yeah. Of their great adventure. Yeah. So then, Thierry de Chardin, Joseph Campbell, Margaret Mead then. Margaret Mead was perhaps the most important. She decided that I was her, she said, I need another daughter, so that's probably you. <laughs> and so <laughs> I became the daughter, and she lived with us off oh. and on. Yes, the last six years of her life, off I and see. on. And Margaret was the one who sent me all over the world. She said, Jean, go out and harvest the human potential. <laughs> so she would send me to a tribe in West Africa that had... She said, so interesting, no history of war as far as we know, and no neurosis as we understand it. Find out how they do it. So I went and lived with them, and I found out that they did have big problems, but they solved them through dance and singing. It was from another plane of consciousness altogether that they could see solutions. And she sent me to finish her work in Bali, which had begun in the 1930s. Find out why they were all artists. And so I went and I studied art with them, and I discovered that they were also ones who shifted dimensionality. They shifted consciousness, and they would become not just the artist, but the art itself. So that gave me a These lot of ideas. pretty major influential thinkers of the century. I 
believe you even had an encounter in your youth uh, with Einstein. Is that true? When I was eight years old. Yes. That was then. I was very young. Yes. Yeah. I went to a school that took us to meet some of the great elders of the time, PS6. Mm. And uh, we were taken to meet Mr. Einstein. He came in. Very sweet, a little vague. Uh, he had on two different colored socks, as I recall. <laughs> and one of our smart aleck kids said, Mr. Einstein, how can we be as smart as you? And he said, mm, read fairy tales. We did not like that answer at all. So another smart aleck kid said, well, Mr. Einstein, how can we get to be smarter than you? And he said, mm, read more fairy tales. And then he explained what he meant, imagination. He said, the biggest quality I have is imagination. It all begins with the story, and that's who we are as human beings. We are storytellers, and that, in fact, has helped us create what I call the human universe. The storytelling embodies themes that are related to the physical body, but also related to the emotional body, the intellectual body, what we call mind, intellect, and ego. And then they go beyond that into the world of spirit. It's a never-ending horizon. Yeah. But is there any limit to imagination or creativity or evolution? Well, I think we are more acts of imagination than anything else. That we come, we are spawned from an imaginal world. Uh, a world where these these potencies for what can be always exist. I mean, it's what Plato called the eidos, the divine ideas. Einstein, his imagination is more important Much than more knowledge. Much more important yeah. than anything, because his imagination took him into the imaginal where the potency of what can be exists. I believe in you know three primary realms, at least for human beings: the everyday, our everyday local self. And then, of course, the high self-beingness itself, consciousness itself. But in between is the imaginal, serving as a lure of becoming. This can be an I, the archetype, or the angel, or the potency is there to help you. I do an exercise every day. I go and I meet my imaginal template of a higher order of my body, mind, psyche. And I have a real communion with it. So I, I am retuned by the template. And I think every idea has, as Plato said, an optimal template. And that's something that we have to think about. The fact that there are templates of goodness, there are templates of excellence, there's templates of what yet can be. And if you stimulate a child's mind with that, there's something I try to do when I try to renew schools. Oh my, these children grow up imaginatively, creatively, and happily. So, Jean, your foray then into the world of human potential, in a sense, began with mythology. And as you said, you yes, were the great close, stories of the world. Great yes, stories with, of the world, not only in the East, but also in the West. And, and the North South Axis. And the North South. And you worked with Joseph Campbell on that too, although you took it to a new level, introducing the divine feminine as well. Well, yes, because we would have roaring fights about the heroine's journey. Yes. Because he didn't he really... He only focused on the hero's <laughs> journey. He didn't particularly believe it, that it existed. He said, oh, you work on it. And uh, so I, I, I did. The word myth. Myth, I'm told, is 
the same as mother. Matrix. Matrix, time, mm. music, measurement. It's sort of the core uh, word Yes, of the, the core world, word of everything. It's the mother of all stories, mm-hmm. in a sense, myth. And um, what myth is trying to do is take the infinite potential of existence and because we can't imagine the infinite, we create a story out of mm-hmm. it. And these gods, goddesses, sacred archetypes. beings, archetypes are basically the encapsulation of an entire story. Yes. So my teachers of mythology in India used to say, you don't worship the goddess, you invoke her. So if you invoke the goddess of wealth, you become wealthy. You invoke the goddess of uh, Knowledge, Saraswati, Saraswati. you become uh, wise. And this is the practical aspect of these stories and these mythologies that they embody everything from states of energy to states of information to states of knowledge. But most important, those people Mm -hmm. who are doing extraordinary things, Mother Teresa's of the world, Nelson Mandela's of the world, Mahatma Gandhi's of the world, Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. Jr.'s of the world, they are actually embodying a mythical theme in their lives. Mm -hmm. And they become luminaries, they become leaders. And you took that to a new level because you you kind of traveled all over the world and understood the different mythologies of the world, East and West. What can our listeners right now understand? How does myth become practical in their lives mm-hmm. if they want to get out of this karmic burden of... yes? past experience and interpretation and the conditioning that goes on in our society by culture, by media. This conditioning is so Mm deep-rooted that is mythology the answer to get out of that and move to a higher plane? Well, the myth in some ways is something that never was but is always happening. I have found in my work of taking depth soundings of the psyche of people literally all over the world that everyone is filled with mythic stories. But it is a matter of giving themselves time, place, silence to allow the mythic themes to arise. By tapping into the mythic story, we found that people have a natural incarnational inclination to go mythic. The stories are coded deeply in our collective psyche through the prism of often very particular cultures, so that Saraswati, for example, in India may look more like Athena in the Western mythos. The aspiration is very close to being the the same. I mean, I know that as a little boy, your mother (laughs) laid the myths (laughs) and the archetypes on you, which had, I'm sure, a profound profound influence. Um, the cosmic Krish- Krishna and also Ganesh was important. Yeah, Ganesh. Ganesh. And sort of, you and know, my Saraswati. mother would say, invoke the goddess of wisdom and the goddess of wealth and abundance will be jealous and she'll chase you. So don't go after wealth. Don't go after abundance. You don't have to seek <laughs> abundance. Abundance will yes. seek you. I believe my mother. Believe That's what mother. I did. But you grew up within a mythic life, a mythic realm, and thus your life became mythic, mm-hmm. and that you still, I'm sure, have relationships to these great archetypes. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely, and I do too. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine went more in the ancient Greek form, mm-hmm. uh, 
I mean, I, I speak ancient Greek, for goodness sakes. <laughs> you embody Athena. And, well, some and people, some people think so, you know. Yeah. But I found that the, by, by having the Athena as a dominant mythic part of my life and my psychology, that my life, and what does she do? She's a wisdom carrier, but she's also one who is always ever near to people. And part of my life is to help people move into another order of their destiny, not the ordinary flatline destiny. So their own natural mythic potencies arise and their story changes and the story around them changes. And when we come back, Jean will take me and you on a mythic journey. Stay tuned. I want to tell you about a technology called Viome.com, a new technology that not only analyzes your gut, but can also recommend the unique foods to avoid, as well as to enjoy, to keep your gut healthy. I have personally taken this test and seen the benefits firsthand. Viome identifies all bacteria, viruses, yeast, fungus, and mold in your gut, as well as what these organisms are actually producing and which could be causing your body harm. For the first time, Viome is now available for only $199. Just a few months ago, it was $399. So please take advantage of what this test can offer you and your family. Go to Viome.com to order your gut intelligence test today. That's V-I-O-M-E dot com. Your diet is the most powerful tool you have to affect change in your health, and you now have it in your hands. Now let's return to our conversation with Dr. Jean Houston. We all know what the story of the hero looks like a trying adventure full of adversity and challenges, a crisis of which the hero overcomes and triumphs. And then finally, the return, with the hero a better, more learned member of society. But this story is not just of the fictional world. Each of us have our own hero's or heroine's journey. All right, I have a proposal for you here. Hmm. Shall I take you through a hero's journey? Yes, let's in terms do it right of, now. In terms of where you are now, not necessarily where you were. Yes. Would you like to do that? Yes, let's All do right. it for our listeners. Okay. The hero's journey, let's take the classical hmm. one, begins with a call. Do you feel called now in a new way that you haven't had before? I feel called. I've always felt called, but now that I'm turning 72, I have a new calling. And is there a refusal of the call? You've been so successful in the old call. Is there any kind of uh, both regret and pullback? No. No, so this call no... has been coming all my life. All right. Then in this next part, the friends show up. The ideas show up. The enterprises, the opportunities well, show up. Friends like you show up. Yes. And friends, scientists, humanitarians, philanthropists. There we they're go. all showing up now. And then in the next stage, there is the um, uh, the guardian at the gate who says, uh-uh, not so fast. <laughs> and you either have to fool their expectations, fool them, or find a way to get past 
these guardians of things as they are are as they are because they were as they were and they don't want you to get past so that. I so I have those do do? in my life and I call them my petty tyrants, you know, as Carlos Castaneda did. Yes. And they say one of the following things. You're crazy, number one. You're crazy, of course. Or it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Or it's not the right time. Or people are not ready. Or it's too difficult. Then you get by them. What do you do to fool them? I treat them with friendliness, uh, empathy, compassion. I listen to what they're saying, use it as feedback, but I don't take it as criticism. You know, I've decided that my critics could be my best friends and my best teachers. So while I'm immune to their criticism, I do listen to what they're saying. And in a way, they're pointing the challenges ahead. And then you fall into the belly of the whale. You go into the cave. You go into a place of deep silence or totally other from anything that you have ever really lived in before. So that this, the higher nature, the next nature, the higher destiny can begin to recalibrate, rejuvenate, reframe your life and your purpose. So this is how I've heard it said. When you have a vision for what is possible, even though it seemingly is impossible, but you emotionally and spiritually connect with that, and you kind of think about what the story is, And then you go into, as you said, the belly of the whale, incubate. There is the proliferation of uncertainty. And it is the proliferation of uncertainty that causes the death of the old paradigm Mm -hmm. and the emergence of a new context, new meaning, new purpose, new story, which has literally nothing to do with the old story. It's a kind of a discontinuity. It's not an evolution from one thing to another which could be programmed into an algorithm because it's a total break. And that's what we call these days disruption. It's a very yes, yes, very, very popular mm-hmm. phrase, disruption. Mm-hmm. But disruption is a discontinuity. It's literally the death of whole context, meanings, relationships, stories, something that never existed before. That's what human potential is the possibility to make something that existed potentially, perhaps, our everyday reality. Well, with that, with the embodying of these capacities, you then enter, in the traditional story, into the road of trials or the road of adventures. So you come out of the belly of the whale. Out of the belly of the whale, into... And this is the... This is the part of the adventure that most storytellers give the, their finest writing and their deepest ideas because it's very exciting. The supernatural allies show up. They say, again, we have a live one there. Let's join him. Let's join her in this great adventure because that will grow us as well. That grows yeah. the archetype. And synchronicity, meaningful coincidences, being yes. at the right place at the right time. And where good are you luck. now with that? 
I'm there. You're I'm there. experiencing that you're, right you're now. You're in that part of the yeah, story I say, now. You know, I'm, I don't even get surprised because, you know, what is good luck, opportunity and preparedness coming together? Mm-hmm. What religious traditions call this the state of grace or if you're extremely religious, you say God's on my side, but they all mean the same thing. And then you cross the threshold of the mythic world into the depth structures of the mythic world. So stories are double-edged, right? They can destroy us mm-hmm. or they can uplift us. They can evoke the higher calling. They can make us more responsible. They can make us more authentic. Right now, there are different stories competing. What's going to happen? or Can we even predict what's going to happen as we move into the future? What's the ideal new story and what are the challenges? You know, traveling as much as I do and talking to everybody... I ask variations on this question. What is the new story? What is the new story that you really want? And rarely do I hear materialism. If I do, it's just there for the opening remark, and then they open up. They open up with being engaged by the larger power of which they are a part. Living, I mean, what Jesus referred to as living in the kingdom, that the kingdom is in the midst of you. And I think that this materialistic overlay is merely uh, an entry point to the larger kingdom, but people don't know what's in the kingdom. So I find that if you describe the story of the kingdom, what does it look like? What does it feel like? And people, they will give me The old story told in a new way so that the matter is not key to it, but was as key as the spirit that filled with the people. So that I find that with an invisible and stealthy energy, this new story is already there. It's just that we have to listen for it. At this moment in our culture, there is a collective conversation going on that it's time now to invoke the divine feminine and the motifs and themes embodied in the different mythical goddesses, East and West. But let's talk about just, you know, my favorite seven in the West, Athena, Wisdom, Demeter, Mother, Persephone, Alchemist, uh, Hera, Power, Aphrodite, Sexuality and Sensuality, Artemis, uh, Nature, Conservation. I was just thinking, if you take all of these, you know, uh, they embody almost everything that we need in our culture right now, Mm -hmm. which is deeply wounded and in need of mending. Do you think that we are in a transition where the old paradigm of conquest, predation, dominance is going to gradually shift into a paradigm that focuses on beauty, on nurturing, on tenderness, on transformation, on intuition, on creativity, on healing. Ultimately, yes, that's what we're all about, right? To heal our wounded soul. Well, I think that that is, what you're saying is a very beautiful paradigm shift in itself, the way you have related it to the, the spiritual archetypes. We are certainly in a time of whole system transition where everything is changing. Uh, what we need is the the images and the leadership in this transition 
and if it can be democratized rather than not a man on the horse, not the Messiah. What I find around the world, I'm sure you do too, Deepak, in your travels, is a movement toward interspirituality. There is a kind of archetypal revival that is going on around the world, with the archetypes themselves being grown. I mean, they don't just come down in full of their own archaic base. They recycle they and recycle they evolve. And they evolve. Yes. So in the time of the evolution of archetypes, and that's something that certainly I find myself in the I midst of wherever I will find them in the themes. Wonder Woman, Superman, Wonder Woman. and now all well, the, yes, the feminine the, archetypes coming in. The, yeah, they are morphically shifting. This is part of the new mythos. But the rise of Wonder Woman and the rise of similar archetypes in the world, in people that you and I both know, who are becoming the residences, if you will, for the archetypal shift, the archetypal changes. So with the whole system transition, it is overcoming the great divide of otherness into the suchness of we. The fact in whether we say that the, the, the crowning essence of it is love, and which you've written about so beautifully. So right now in the world, there's a crisis of leadership. <laughs> Big time. We've been talking about the divine feminine yes. and how it relates to leadership. Where does that story go now with uh -huh. the death of the... I hate to say it, I'm a man, but I think the masculine archetype has, in a way, exhausted its energy. You know, it has done everything it needed to do, create colonial empires and, you know, all the things that went wrong. I find that the rise of women releases men to be what they can be. Because there's an enormous goodness in manhood. Of course. And it's not been allowed to tap in because of the, or I mean, it, it has, but it's been compromised by these ancient archetypal notions of what men are. I really see that by the end of the century, that this renewal, this unification of civilizations and cultures into a new order of unity. But above all, I think it is the rise of women to full partnership with men over the whole domain of human affairs. I think it is encouraging the new mythos, especially in the millennials, because they hold the imagination, the vision, and the energy, I think, to make things happen. A new that. story for a new humanity. A new story for a new humanity. Once you can tell the new story, then it, it, it gives energy to the, the basic storying capacity and need of people the world over and one that can appeal across many cultures. So, Jean, there's a shift going on right now. Why now? Complexity and consciousness. That we have a level of complexity globally that has, as far as I know, never been ever known before. And with complexity becomes stress and with stress becomes radical necessity to do something about it. I mean, factors unique in human history, the rise of women to full partnership with men, with a lot of backlash, the, the electronic media that makes us interconnected whether we like it or not. The fact that everybody is busybody and there is a knowingness and a fear of the other such as we haven't had because we've never had masses of people connecting again, crossing the great divide of otherness. There is uh, technology taking over the human things we used to do and human things that we yearn for being presented as theater 
So we live in a sort of a global story, global theater. It, it's, it's the uniqueness of time. Nobody has really been prepared to live in a time of so much complexity. And so that's why you have the fallback to uh, leaders or ideas. Fundamentalists. Fundamentalist, of, yeah. yes, go back to fundamentalist. But this is also the time that people just can't stand it anymore. <laughs> and you get to that, and you look throughout history, it's always in times of the hothouse or the stress that the emergence comes, whether it is a renaissance or a spiritual evolution. So we are in the time of grow or die. And my choice as yours is always to grow. So, Gene, um, people are listening to us. They're saying, how can I start my own journey to unfold my potential? Can you give them some hints right now, you know, that they've heard this, they've been inspired. How can they start their own journey? Well, it is probably true that you all feel a call in some way. And even if you forgot it, you know that it is there. You are not just a human being having a spiritual experience. You truly are a spiritual being having a human experience. A non-local being having a local experience. And a non-local experience. being having a local experience. Put your mind there. I mean, even if you do it for 10 or 20 minutes a day, whether you do it in meditation, whether you do it as in a dance, whether you do it while you're running with your dog, I mean, it, it find that high moment during the day. The calling. The calling. And that is the call. And live at least at that time, as the spiritual being having the human experience, and then have the dialogue between local self and God self, uh, high self, uh, universal self. Because as you become more and more, it's like when Superman puts on his Superman clothes, or when Wonder Woman really becomes this great Athena-like being. You have that those beings in you. You are not simply a local human personality. You have many persona. You have many, many, many people in you, and you also have a great hero and a great heroine. Get to know them, interact with them, realize that you are not caught in a no end, no exit situation. You live in the most interesting time in human history, and believe it or not, you are as interesting as this new history. It's beautiful. I once uh, heard somebody say, the gods and goddesses reside in you in embryo, and they have only one desire. They want to be born. And the universe is a work in progress, just as you are. Our own hero's journey is coming to a temporary end. I hope it has been as enlightening for you as it has been for me. I've learned more than I could have imagined. From what it feels like to open a brain, to float in space, to make people laugh, to befriend chimps in the wild, and more. It's been a privilege and a joy. Thank you for your amazing support throughout. I look forward to continuing this exploration together into the mysteries of our infinite potential.
Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by David Shadrach Smith and Julie Magruder and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach-Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. We're most grateful to you for helping grow our community of listeners. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential.